0: Welcome to CFO Insights, the leading podcast for finance professionals in disruptive tech, brought to you by the startup CFO community. I'm Guy Hutchinson, and I'm the host of the podcast, as well as being a tech CFO. In this episode, we're going to talk to Edward Keelan from Octopus Ventures. Edward has held positions with Octopus for 15 years, now focusing on the B2B software vertical, overseeing deal origination, and he sits on their investment committee. In our discussion, we reflect on a world but growth at all costs is a thing of the past. We learn about why CFOs are great at pursuing business fundamentals and assess the key growth efficiency metrics that VCs are focused on. Edward, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, thanks, Guy. Thanks so much for having us.
0: Yeah, well, look, we found that um, yourself and Octopus Ventures have, have been really good supporters of our group, Startup CFO. We're really pleased to have you On the podcast um, doing this really interesting talk on what's been happening out there and how this changes roles for CFOs Uh, and um, when we hear about Octopus in the group we we nearly always hear really positive things you know we we hear it's a great fund and uh, obviously successful and well-known but also one that takes a real interest in the value-add of the CFO Um, and that's always a good thing to hear.
1: Oh, well yeah, thank you very much for those uh, kind words. And yes, we absolutely do see the value add of a of a strong CFO.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always it's always good. It's always good good for people like us, that's for sure. Um but look, I mean, um it'd be really good just to maybe hear a little bit about your background before we dive into the topic of um kind of recent turmoil in the markets and what what that's meant for investors and what that's meant for the companies and the CFOs. Um, but always good just just to get a little bit of insight into uh, someone's background and how they've reached where they are right now.
1: Uh, yeah, thanks very much. First of all, I, I need to apologise that um, I'm I'm a little bit sick, so I'm sat here with my LemSip <laughs> and a little bit like Barry White, but that isn't my normal my normal tone of voice. I've just uh, uh, I say I've uh, just just a little bit fluy at the moment, so apologies if I cough down the the line at you. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, but no, so I've been at Octopus for for about 15 years now, so quite quite a long time. Um, for those that don't know, Octopus Ventures, we're one of the most active, recommended uh, venture capital firms in Europe. Um, we're a B Corp, so we invest in the people, ideas and industries that are trying to change the world for the better. And, and we, we invest in all sorts of sectors. So everything from fintech, deep tech, health tech, biotech, consumer tech, um, first check and where I work, which is in B2B software. Uh, so my focus is as an investor into kind of growth stage B2B software companies. So investing sort of two to 10 million into B2B software companies doing two to 10 million pounds worth of annual recurring revenue. Um, and I've done that for a long time and enjoy it.
0: Edward, you've also got quite the involvement with the Syed, uh Business School where you did your MBA, uh, but, but but also now run some of their talks, don't you?
1: Uh, Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm a massive business geek uh, at heart. So um, love entrepreneurship, love early stage business. And so the opportunity to kind of do um, some things with the the business school has been fantastic. So uh, both in terms of just sort of talking about subjects um, that are interesting to people around entrepreneurship uh, or about early stage investing or about how to get into VC and then helping to mentor some of their companies that they work with in terms of sort of the business school accelerator. Um, and trying to provide some of the knowledge that I've gained over sort of over a decade of investing and and working with small companies.
0: Fantastic. So that really um, is a powerful sort of combination of seeing some of these things that are happening in the business world, both from the sort of hands-on view of somebody who's actively investing and has been for 15 years, and also from the academic view as to how future business leaders are learning, you know, about these things and, um, exploring new business opportunities
1: yeah definitely and um i just enjoy. It. it's just a, i mean oxford is just a fabulous place to go and, and and hang out and um work with some brilliant people so i'm I, it kind of ticks all the boxes for me i enjoy kind of um education I, I also work with quite a lot of kind of schools as well so so the younger people between the ages of 16 and 18 through um a charity called working options um and just explaining what i do really and also the the sort of interest in entrepreneurship and getting people excited about early stage companies
0: yeah that sounds really good i'd like to at some point hear a bit more about um work with uh, working options that sounds really um you know really interesting really positive uh fantastic and 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 um, out of curiosity how did how did sas become the main focus like how did that sort of become the kind of principal area you know where you're spending your time
1: I just, uh, you know, from a very early age, age eleven, I just always wanted to be a SAS investor guy, so that was my, uh, you know, always my calling. Um, but no, I <laughs> <laughs> like with most of these things, it, you 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 kind of go step from one thing to the next and, and end up there. So, uh, so I've been in Octopus for quite a long time, and, and actually started investing in sport. That was my my first area. We used to invest in football clubs and cricket clubs and things like that, and it was great fun. Um, But that stopped, and then we started investing into renewable energy, and so I became uh, an investor into kind of energy assets. To be honest, I'd always wanted to be kind of work with small companies, and and at one point I was sort of realizing that I was now investing in pieces of metal. Um, And as much as I find the energy energy industry interesting, it just wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to work with people and, and entrepreneurs. And and so therefore the, there was a team. And at the time we were more of a buyout fund. Um, so we we're doing a lot of kind of early stage buyouts. Um, but the rules changed because um, we managed VCTs and you could no longer do buyouts with um, VCT money. And we sort of were looking around for, okay, well, if we can't do buyouts, what, what do we think is a good area to invest in? Um, and we were trying to do things that had a kind of a lower risk mandate than than sort of your traditional early stage vc type back things and, and what we came across was b2b software where you've got strong repeating revenues lower customer concentration good scalability strong retention just sort of fit all the boxes that we were looking for in our investment mandate and so we actually changed the, the entire investment strategy of the fund that i manage um from sort of a this small buyout fund into this b2b software fund um and you know that's been a a massive success story for us so the fund grew from sort of 110 million to about 330 million over the last sort of three to five years um so it was obviously the right the right choice but it was kind of by necessity rather than necessarily um being by design
0: yeah and that's a huge pivot as well isn't it i mean by the standards of any fund that's uh, sort of moving from from um things that are almost you know polar you know polar opposites really which is remarkable uh but look I mean SAS has obviously had some huge success stories and I'm sure that when you guys look back through the rear view mirror you see um that 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 choice being very smart and having played well I'm sure uh but of course the last four or five years uh, the markets generally in tech and uh, VC investing uh, have been through some quite remarkable changes, and that's really the topic that we're going to focus on in this fireside chat. Is just to kind of have a deep dive into how 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 you've seen that pan out. What's that meant for uh, your activities, for your businesses, and for SaaS overall? Um, so it would be interesting just to sort of hear how that time period has appeared to be from the standpoint of a VC.
1: Yeah, there's kind of a lot in that question. And and I was going to pick up on a point you mentioned earlier about how, um, you know, it's a big flip from sort of doing smaller buyouts to SaaS investing, um, which you're right about. It, it was, although we, we come in at the growth stage, so we are probably more analytical. So we look at KPIs and the finance side, probably more than sort of a startup, uh, a very, very early stage startup VC. Um, so, you know, there was numbers to analyze and look at. Um, and the industry itself was was really quite early, so although SaaS had been around f- for a number of years by then, it wasn't sort of the hot topic that it is today that everybody's investing into. Um, and so we we kind of grew, grew up with the industry as well, and as it being a, a, as being a really attractive investment area, we've sort of been on the journey together. Um, you know, that said, you know, we do look at the, some of the early investments we made when we changed the strategy and sort of slightly scratch our heads and think, you know, how, how, how do we do that? <laughs> Why did we do that? Um, but, you know, sort of six, seven years down the line, um, I, I'd like to think we're fairly sort of strong, capable SaaS investors now that, that are kind of leading the field. Anybody that doesn't follow my, my colleague, uh, Yutish Renjan uh, on LinkedIn, it's definitely worth doing because he produces a lot of great content on the subject. But to come back to your your question, which was around, okay, what's it been like um, over the last five years? It's been an absolute roller coaster. Uh, So when we started (coughs) investing in SaaS, uh, as I said, it was starting to get interested. Um, VCs were getting more and more interested in SaaS investing because of the the natural recurring revenues, etc and yeah it would it was good it was interesting multiples were around about four to five times annual recurring revenue um which even then i remember giving us a bit of a nosebleed uh compared to some of the buyout stuff we'd been doing previously um but yeah we got we got comfortable with that and then the sort of pandemic hit and we all assumed that um with the pandemic everything was going to crash and from from for a very small moment (laughs) called sort of April it did sort of the music stopped and nobody kind of invested in anything and no one was really quite sure where valuations were going to go um but it then started to become clear kind of over the summer of the the first part of the pandemic in 2020 that actually people were really interested in SaaS, and that due to the fact of remote working and because of new ways of working and digitalization of companies this this kind of sector is actually the one that people wanted to invest into um, and a lot of money flowed into it. Um, and as a lot of money flowed into it, that had a, had a huge hit on valuation, or a huge increase in valuation. So we went from what we thought was pretty lofty, kind of four to five times ARR multiple valuations to to losing deals where we're, where we're putting in offers at 12, 13 times annual recurring revenues. So you'd, you'd have sort of, you know, a 2 million pound SaaS company valued at 25, 30 billion pounds. Uh, which is really hard to invest into if you don't, you know, given where we thought the value was. Um, And then the market got really hot and you had a lot of sort of U.S. hedge funds that come in. And um, what they saw was that, wow, these valuations are high and they're even higher in the public markets. And therefore, we can, you know, if we can get the growth going really, really quickly, we can flip these companies into the to the public markets. And. You know, some some of the kind. Of, I think the average um, IPO was done at sort of twenty plus times ARR, and there was you know lots of cases of doing sort of fifty times ARR valuations. And so there was just a real uh, benefit to these sort of large US hedge funds. I won't name them, uh, obviously, uh, but the these large US hedge funds to just pump the entire market, the private market, full of money, um, trying to get growth in one or two years, and then flip it into IPO.
0: Yeah. And, and is that pattern, right? Is that pattern as simple as herding that that, that, that people realise in in that summer, which I think was 2020, that the way that the world works is dramatically changing. Um, all of these tools, whether it be CRM platforms or Zoom or whatever, are just suddenly going to be utilised in a completely different manner and much more important in all businesses going forwards uh but then is it is it as simple as the fact that there's some herding either either among the vcs or among uh the funds who invest in uh, stocks that are listed um or is it more complex than that, that that you get these 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 big swings that then don't make sense when you when you look back on them
1: yeah i mean for anybody that um sort of follows behavioral finance uh like i do so you know the read books like a random walk down wall street and behavioral finance and and things like that then you know it's definitely herd mentality and and i think where people i think where people sort of mistake things is they think it's a kind of herd mentality but as much as anything it's where short-term investors come into a long-term market so if you look at anything from like the dot-com boom um, you know, what really happened there is very short-term thinking came into what is a very long-term mindset for investment. You know, we're, we're investing in companies that we shouldn't really expect an exit for five years, six years, seven years. But then you've got investors that are coming in looking to pump companies full of money in order to get rapid growth to flip them within one or two years into the, into the public markets. Because um, they need that next, you know, the, uh, the greater fall theory. They need that greater fall to then take it on. Um, and I think that it was a case of it was a bit of both. So first of all, it was SaaS looks really interesting because this is the way the world's going to go. And this makes sense in a more flexible post-pandemic world. And then it was, oh, actually, there's kind of a bit of a herd going on. And then the short term investors take take advantage of that. Um, and as I say, that's when you know, valuations then go sky high. And then even you as a long term investor investing in SaaS and sat there going, well, if we want to play in this market, you you have to kind of follow the market you can't you can't get away from that um now when the music stopped um as it has done over you know at the end sort of middle of last year people are starting to get a bit worried about the the kind of heat within the ipo market as soon as that happens obviously you don't have the greater fall and, and you can't sell that business on and the short the short term uh investors get massively burnt um and you're kind of left with the, the lights of what I'd like to think the likes of us, which is the long-term investors that are investing sensibly in the right way.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, and 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 I can see um, and I, I can see that it must be very hard for any active investor uh to refuse to play as the multiples ramp and people talk more about flips because because that's that's the only warning sign that um, behaviors are no longer focused on sort of long-term outcomes. Um, but I mean, did you meet entrepreneurs and, uh, you know, people that were building great businesses who perhaps, um, chose to turn away some unbelievable offers, um, because they thought there could be trouble later on if the market then went back to norms or was, was everybody caught up in, in, in that and kind of founders that, 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 that could take deals on those terms did take deals on those terms.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it's a very brave founder to turn around and say, "I've got an offer for twenty times ARR here, and I've got another one for five. I'm going to take the one that's five times ARR." Um, you know, ultimately, people took the people generally took the higher offers and and took the greater valuations because um, you know there's less dilution. It was cheap money, so why 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 would you not? And who You know, anyone trying to second guess a market and where that might end up is it's a it's a fool's game, obviously. So, um, yeah, in in the main, people would <clears throat> continue to take the highest valuation they could, but also under pressure from their existing investors. I mean, if you've got a, we, we invest at that growth stage of that sort of, uh, as I say, companies are usually over two million pounds worth of annual recurring revenue. So they've probably had some investors already and therefore, you know, to, for the, you've got the other investors on the cap table that also will want to, uh, take the higher valuation so it's, it's not fair to just kind of put it on the founders you know there were definite cases where the founder was like oh i'd like to take your money guys because i think you can add added value and you're in it for the long term but there's pressure from my board and my cap table to take the highest valuation on offer
0: yeah it's interesting that, that that essentially all of the you know participants in it be it your existing investors or the founders or the people that would seek to be your new investor, or your new money. Um, everybody's caught up into it. No, nobody wants to disbelieve that it might be sustainable, uh, and so you have this period of, of you know, what, what we now know as a bubble. But even though at the time it was happening, um, probably the group think was, "Hey, look, you know, maybe this is sustainable. Maybe this is what tech valuations look like going forward."
1: Yeah, just to be clear, I mean, as a team, uh, we didn't think it was sustainable. Uh, we thought that the prices were really, really rich. Um, and, you know, we had long discussions about it. So, you know, we, I think in the main, we remained as a, as a team, the team uh, it, that I I work with, you know, in the main, we, I think, really did stay disciplined and where we did have very high valuations then we would want some form of underlying structure into that so we would you know we didn't do much on a kind of one times non-participating preference um that had super high valuations because we did believe that the market was inflated and and that would come back eventually um which obviously which obviously has been has been proven right at the moment
0: yeah Uh, absolutely yeah yeah you guys saw you saw that coming and uh um, you know, at some level, uh, because Octopus has been around for a long time, uh, it's not like you are a fund that was founded three years back where it might be easier to reflect on those transitions as something that's a new normal, I guess, being a more experienced fund, it was easier to identify that, that, that some of these things might not be sustainable. And some of those deals needed to be done differently because of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, again, I would, what I would say is obviously, um, you know, I don't pretend you can predict a market. Nobody should. And so I wouldn't go as far as to say we we foresaw it. I think we just, in in the team that I work in, we just we just felt that it looked like valuations were very, very high. And therefore I say we we, we looked to protect that where we could. But you do have a, I mean, every investor has the same thing is that you are given, you have an investment mandate. You've raised money against that investment mandate. The people who have invested know that that's the mandate of the fund. And therefore, you are in a situation where your job is to invest that fund. <laughs> you, you know, it's it's um, it's very hard to turn around and say, "Well, we're just not going to invest because that's your that's kind of your job." Um, and you know, there's many many people that have got caught out believing that they could time a market or that they could believe they could read a market. You know, my everything I've read tells me that is not possible.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see. Um, I can see how. Uh, you. You shouldn't be believing that 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 you can do those things when actually the history of reading markets tends to tell you that um, that 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 type of thinking doesn't really pay off, and uh, it's unlikely that that, that you're going to successfully read the shape of the market. Um, but like moving on to um, what this means for people like CFOs or or FDs in our group, uh, you know we've got a broad spectrum. We've got some people who are probably head of finance that might be a couple of years into their first leadership role. We've got some CFOs with probably 15 years experience. Um, this is a big change, right? Like it's not those businesses that might have been out there hunting down a C round, for example, um, that, that market's really contracted.
1: Yeah. The, 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 the role of the CFO is probably changed upon recognition for startups and early stage companies. And I, and I do feel and feel for CFOs. And I also think that they pay just the most pivotal role um, right now um, in, in most sort of early-stage companies. Um, you know, there was, uh, as we've talked about, it was, for, for, for a number of years, it was all about growth, 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 how can we go faster? The CFO's time would have been about, you know, how can we make the ship go, how can we get growth go faster with, and, and, and don't worry too much about efficiency and how much we're burning, just worry about how we're going to get to our next funding round and how much more money we can raise. So. You know, actually, I think for most CFOs I meet, they're, they're generally quite prudent in nature. It's probably quite, quite an uncomfortable time, um, maybe quite exciting, but the idea that you're kind of just not managing the business in an efficient way, and you're just trying to grow quickly in order to get to the next funding round, and then your job is to make sure that funding round happens, um, to some probably felt quite uncomfortable. You know, what we're seeing now is the CFO go back to maybe a much more traditional role um, with you know that you would see in in, in a kind of non VC company where VCs and Investors are saying okay. Well, how can we stretch out efficiency? You know, how can we stretch out cash flow? How can we make sure that we've got enough runway? Um, and control costs a, a, aligned with that so The CFA is playing a much much more active role in terms of the operations of the business um, and and where uh, You know where things can be changed and where cut costs can be cut and um, I think for some CFOs, that's probably a little bit less daunting because they're now building cash flow forecasts um, that, that show runway and they're now monitoring KPIs in, in a way they didn't before that, that really show efficiency and, and pushing CEOs to think harder about that um so yeah I it's almost the role of the cfo has completely reversed in a lot of ways and i think that's probably across across the spectrum all the way from startups to scale ups but certainly as you mentioned you know if you look at the where the funding has really dried up in the world of vc it's much it's it's a lot of the sort of series c and d those larger sort of 50 to 100 million pound raises that you saw kind of frequently they're now gone so as, as the company is a company is being established and is starting to build revenues you can't just keep ramping up the cost base you've got to start putting that revenue and cost base to start marry together and obviously that's where the the CFO comes in to to find out how best how to do that
0: yeah so that's really a focus on uh, those that like to exploit their skills that are you know commercial operating skills and it sounds like particularly partnering because you know traditionally the CEO is going to be quite comfortable with risk, uh, in, in some cases quite a lot of risk, uh, particularly when the markets are hot. Uh, and the CFO much more conservative, and so you know a bit more risk averse. And finding a way for those two to operate well together, and for the CFO to be a counterbalance, um, is a key part of you know how that person acts as a business partner. Um, and it sounds like those are the key themes. And then if you look at the metrics that people are looking at in terms of um, efficiency metrics um, that, that that tell you whether the business is broadly on track is that like a trade-off between things like growth or the development of margins versus how much you're burning or what your losses are you know what 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 types of metrics are you seen sort of much more in vogue say like you know the last you know 12 months or so
1: um yeah good. Great question. Um, I sort of categorise the the metrics into sort of um, sort of three parts. I guess you've got your growth metrics, which are just you know the, around CAGR and how quick your your company's growing, and 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 looking at that. Um, so you've got that just sort of general growth, um, and then you've got your sort of overall business efficiency metrics and sales metrics, and I'd, I'd put them into two slightly different buckets. Um, to, touching on sales metrics first. Um, I think sometimes sales metrics are um, sort of, the importance of them are, are overplayed because until a company gets to a certain scale and has the sort of flywheel running, it's quite hard to, to, to determine enough from those sales metrics as to whether the business can grow efficiently. So ones that are, are used quite a lot, are things like LTV over CAC, so lifetime value of the customer divided by the cost of acquiring that customer. Um, you know, in a very very early stage company where you don't have huge amounts of cost to acquire a customer and you don't know the lifetime value particularly well of the that customer it's probably not enough data there to really understand whether you're doing it right or not um, but certainly LTV over CAC is is one that you see a lot um, talked about for, for early stage companies um, and then when you're sort of talking to the more business efficiency metrics I think they become more relevant across the board really um, so, a couple that are worth mentioning, I would probably talk about the burn multiple. I think that's very interesting right now, especially in SaaS. So, how much uh, ARR are you adding versus how much are you burning? Uh, so, if you're adding a million pounds worth of ARR and you know you're burning two million pounds worth of cash to get there, then your burn multiple is two. It's quite simple. Um, and you know, historically that was looked at, but everyone was just more interested in what the growth number was and the burn multiple was like, well, as long as it's reasonable, that'll be okay. We're in a world now where sort of less than one on the burn multiple. So that means uh, if you're sort of burning the same amount as you're adding as worth of ARR, it's kind of good that's okay. Uh, If you get sort of one and a half times, that's probably acceptable as long as you're growing at a decent rate as well. And then anything over two is, is definitely not okay now. So if you're... If it's taking you, you know, two million, three million pounds to, to to add every million pounds worth of annual recurring revenue, then you've got a problem. You need to massively reduce the amount you're burning. And obviously that's going to affect how much ARR you can add as well. Um, although I think what I find interesting is generally when companies get more efficient, it, it has less of an impact on growth as they believe. Um, you know, if you get more efficient, what you find is the people who, are, if you if you keep with your real source, the of superstars, they step in and they become more flexible and they do more. And actually, the business grows much more efficiently, and, and you can use that as an opportunity to to sort of re- refocus on on your ideal customer profile and who you're trying to target and how you're trying to target them so yeah i would i would pay close attention to your your burn multiple right now i think that's something that's really really important especially in SaaS investing
0: yeah super interesting so i would say that probably some people listening uh who are in SaaS business are probably on top of uh that 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 metric already but in terms of um to get really geeky on the, the nuts and bolts of it, so the burn uh, multiple um is that the, the gross ARR increase or is it is it net of things like churn or any down sales or, or other, you know, contractions?
1: Yeah, so your net increase in ARR. So your yeah. net
0: increase in ARR.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is where you, you know, you need to be careful on gross margins with SaaS companies because obviously you can, you, there's all sorts of things you can put into the cost of sales or not, or leave, leave into cost of sales, especially within SaaS. It's if you, you know, if you've got consultants that need to prop up the technology, then, you know your margins can be much lower than sort of where they should be. So we're, we're looking at businesses where we want gross margins certainly over seventy percent and preferably over eighty percent. So if you if you start to sort of drop below that, then when you're talking about net ARR increases, and if your margin's fifty percent, then you, you're probably starting to look at the net uh, the, the the kind of gross margin rather than the top line ARR.
0: Yeah, there's I can I can see now already. Um, there's quite quite a lot of um nuances to it and 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 presumably not not all burn is born equal right because some of the burn will be from um marketing that generates value maybe in one to six months and some of the burn will be from product and tech that generates value maybe over 12 to 24 months so i guess like 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 even when you get into um exactly where the the cash outflow is going to and what what value that will bring in the end that that that, that also can be quite different even even kind of between different SaaS businesses
1: yeah, and also, you know, uh, as well as that, if you're developing products, say there's a, you know, you want to invest X amount of millions of pounds to, to develop version two of the product that's going to launch in two years time, then obviously, you're not going to see any benefit of that R&D spent until until that product's built. Um, and that might be right for the long term value of the company. But ultimately, I think we're in a world right now, um, whereby, you know, you just can't you, that that mentality of like, we've just spent because it will work out in the future has gone. It was definitely there. It was, you know, whereas now I think, yeah, okay, maybe you do want to spend stuff on, you know, money on branding, which is not going to have an impact for for two, three years. But the truth is you don't have the cash runway to survive. Um, And I mean, the beauty about SaaS businesses is that as long as they've got strong retention and so... You know as a if there's no real more important kpi than retention numbers um you know uh, gross retention net retention logo retention really really understanding those because especially with a SaaS business at some point you should always be able to match your revenue and your costs which should give you time so i've got some great case studies of companies which have just said right okay things aren't working we're not scaling efficiently let's just cut back past and let's just try and slowly figure out what the problem is to unlock growth. And then maybe it's taken two or three years, and at that point they've done that, and then the growth has come. And I said the great thing about the SaaS business model is it's one that if you do it right, it gives you that time. And again, the CFO, um, you know, the best CFOs I see are the ones that sort of force the CEO to think, okay, we need to we need to grow with the resources we have and not above and beyond ourselves. Um, Especially, in, especially in this market where you can't just keep raising funds, you can't just keep burning capital in a way that you, maybe you could do with cheap equity in in twenty one.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a really big change in the times for CFOs, and they're uh, definitely finding themselves deploying their skill sets differently from perhaps you know where they were a couple of years ago. And um, one one role of a good VC is to take an interest in the people in the C suite and to uh, uh, help to understand them, help them to grow and develop because nobody's ever the fully finished article so everybody's got opportunities to um, grow and learn new things in terms of the current climate and the kind of businesses that you're working with um, what do you think are the hot learning and development areas for the CFOs that that, that you find yourself talking to?
1: It's a really good question um, I think that the you know we're fortunate in the fact that we see lots and lots and lots of different SaaS businesses and uh you know we spend all of our days looking at the numbers and crunching them etc um in in particular I, I i don't know i'll sort of push the question back to you guy in terms of is there a particular kind of profile of a, a CFO that you're thinking about uh, when asking the question because like most of the CFOs i know i find a really you know a really strong and we quite often put them uh, when we when we come into a company maybe there's there's more of a sort of bookkeeper um than what i would call a cfo um and you know we'll quite quickly put in a cfo because we see it as such an essential um such an essential person to have within that business especially in today's environment um, but to be honest in any environment um i think maybe in terms of our sector and where I would uh, really uh, sort of focus people's energy, is that a, a lot of CFOs come into SaaS and, and apply similar sort of, um, uh, similar processes and procedures to where maybe they've done in a very, very different business. Whereas SaaS is quite unique within its business model. So a lot of the time you're getting a lot of money up upfront um, and then you have to amortize the revenues over the course of a year, or you know in some cases you might have three years up front and you have to amortize that revenues over over three years, that could be quite tricky in things like financial modelling. You know, how do, how do you actually go about doing that? Um, and then also, you kind of the revenue recognition policy in SaaS. You know, we see all sorts of things. You know, if I get a startup CFO that sends me a model, they say they're a SaaS business. Um, and you look in the model and the ARR curve is all over the place. There's the, it's clearly not they're clearly either A, not a SaaS business, or B, they're not recognising their revenue correctly because it's far, far too lumpy. Again, the beauty of a SaaS business should be that 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 plateaus, that you should just get that nice steady increase in in your revenue curve. Um, So I think my advice for somebody stepping into the SaaS world would be really to try and make sure you're understanding how revenue is recognised in SaaS business. Uh, and do some research into that because it is quite different to sort of your your more traditional business
0: Yeah, we certainly see uh, a good number of questions in terms of recognized revenue in the slack group uh, and, and and I think a good proportion do come from SaaS businesses where you know, you're quite right You can have somebody pay up front for 12 months 36 months. It's gonna be recognized appropriately there could be like some professional services that um you, you also offer that get the client set up and that might happen every month or three months and you've got to recognise that appropriately. And of course, contracts can also have a few funnies in as well. Um, and it's, it's it, it, it it does certainly sound like you're expecting to be delivered a financial model that is dealing with the rev piece, but also dealing with the fact that lumpy cash flows are sort a of thing. And if you've got three or four huge clients and they all pay you in January well, you know, that, that means you've got a pretty unusual quarter for your cash flows. Uh, but just circling just back to learning and uh, development, um, do, you, do you find that, that that in your discussions with um, FDs and CFOs, is kind of business partnering is the the kind of degree to which these developments in the business, so that these are truly efficient businesses as they grow? is a lot of it about the way the CFO works with the CEO or the COO or the CMO. Um, is that a topic or is it just taken as a given that that, that, that that's what people will be doing?
1: Oh, it's definitely a topic um, and it's definitely, you know, it should be a given, but it becomes more of a topic, um, you know, because you, the efficiency, obviously, as, you, as you've described, goes straight through the business. So... Um, There's the overall stuff that the CEO should be doing um, in order to understand where they should best uh, allocate resource. Um, But they need to be talking, CFOs need to be talking to heads of product and heads of engineering to just, so that they can understand, okay, like we need to produce product that produces revenues and cash. We can't just kind of, um, uh, uh, we need to understand what's the greatest bang for our buck, as they say, in terms of where we should be putting that resource. Um, And I think probably, more so than any area is, is around sales and a, a cfo can really help a sales leader understand some of those metrics that i talked about before around ltv to cac and uh, you know we often down to the cfo to work with the uh, the head of sales the chief revenue officer to sort of look at commission structures and say well you know actually we don't want to add more sales people because we don't have an efficient flywheel right now And i can show you those numbers within the in the finances that show that we don't have an efficient flywheel so stop adding sales people because we're not doing we're not scaling efficiently i think a lot of the time you know cro's um, maybe that don't have so much experience will just believe that they can add by adding salespeople, that will sort of magically increase ARR, but it actually doesn't really happen. <laughs> you know, quite a lot of the time, if the flywheel's not built, you have a sort of diseconomies of scale. Um, I think it's down to the CFO to really get under those numbers and, and help the CRO to to understand what scaling efficiently scaling efficiently looks like. Um, so. Uh, it, certainly, with the CFOs I work with in, in my portfolio companies that are in that scale-up phase, I don't think there's an area of the business that they that they generally don't touch.
0: We we probably see it similarly, and the thing that I think a lot of our members feedback, um, particularly as they sort of grow and become more experienced, is that there's a part of being a CFO where where you need to educate and teach. So you need to explain um, what 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 certain metrics mean, how they are calculated, why it's relevant. Uh, and you need to also sort of quite actively, you know, um, steer other people in the C-suite towards particular um, things, things you might do or need to do if that metric goes down or if that metric goes up. And, um, it, it, you know, most of us are, you know, accountants by training and that type of um, educating, teaching, you know, persuading, um, it's not on the curriculum. <laughs> and so those those tend to be skills that people have got to learn as they go, or maybe just, you know, um, form a part of their natural makeup.
1: Yeah, and I think I spe- it goes even more so with SAS because it is a different business model to the sort of traditional ones that you probably learn, you know, when you're uh, having done a bit of accounting training myself, you know, it, certainly we weren't taught, we weren't you know, talked a lot about SAS metrics. That just wasn't the, that wasn't something that was on the curriculum. Uh, and and so you've got to sort of educate yourself first. And, and we do that a lot with our CFOs. So, you know, we, we work with our portfolio companies to say, okay, well, look, these are the things that you need to be tracking. So other efficiency metrics like rule of 40. So, you know, the, the idea that if you're, you're, your growth is growth plus EBITDA margin should always equal 40. You know, there aren't many companies that actually manage to do it, but if you do manage to do it, say you've got a, I don't know, 100% growth, you can have a negative EBITDA margin of 60 and then you still get to your rule of 40 But if you're only growing at 20% then you better have a positive EBITDA margin of 20 because that's how you get to your rule of 40 um, You know these things probably aren't generally taught um, But you need to educate yourself because you then have to try and educate the board and you can have a much stronger Conversation as a CFO with I don't know the sales Sales or uh, director or CRO, if you can turn around and say, "Look, you know, LTV to CAT ratio should be around three. You know, we're at we're at one. Your know, cap payback should be 12 months. We're at three years. You know, think just things like this. Uh, you'll have a lot more credibility if you understand both how to calculate those metrics and also, you know, what good looks like. And um, if you do have an investor on the board and it's an investor that's specialist in SaaS investing, then they they certainly should be the ones helping to educate you."
0: Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And actually your point there about what good looks like is um, probably a really good point for us to land on as we move to close out our, our walk through th- this important topic. So um, in terms of what what you're expecting out of CFOs or, or perhaps better to frame it as what, what what tips you might recommend, are there maybe kind of three or four takeaways that you might recommend for someone who might be listening to this, uh, who, who might be in a tech business or a SaaS business, uh, and they're looking to sort of see, hey, look, you know, what do... What do investors like Octopus look for right now? Um, what would those takeaways be?
1: Yeah, I think that you know every every business is different, <laughs> so uh, you have to be careful, and every CEO is different as well. You, know, you have very, you have CEOs that are very much over the finances, and then you have CEOs that that don't even understand the finances, um, and so you know, you have to it's kind of horses for courses slightly. In terms of what we're looking for, you know, if you if you sort of step through it, we're not likely to invest in in things that've got growth of sort of less than 30% um probably probably higher um and then we want to have companies as i think i've mentioned which have like gross margins of over 70%. So if the, if your gross margin is sort of 40 50% then there's work to do probably before you're in in investment ready for for us. Um and then we we you know really keen on efficiency metrics like I've talked about you know we could probably there's probably a story around a two times Burn ratio that you could get comfortable with. Uh, but there probably isn't one uh, a 10 times burn multiple, uh, you know, or a five times burn multiple. And, and really what we're looking for is companies that have a burn multiple of sort of one and a half or less. Um, and then in terms of sales efficiency, uh, whether you've got your lifetime value over cat you know, we want we want to see that that you can add AR really efficiently. And so you're sort of talking about three to four, five times on your LTV to CAT ratios. Um, but also that you've You've calculated this. I'm 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 always surprised going when I get pitch decks and, and financial models how poorly at times that revenue is recognised or or annual recurring revenues are misunderstood and what that actually means. And uh, you know you'll have something like uh, it gets complicated when you have things like overages in businesses and how you account for that overages policy. Uh, so you'll you'll have people that that have very very lumpy ARR curves as I talked about. You know we I, I think spending some time with. With a with an experienced CFO in SaaS to, to to look at how you're recognizing those revenues, so that when you do present your models, you can really stand behind the ARR numbers that you're you're presenting to investors.
0: Yeah, so it it does sound like essentially CFO is getting back to their core sort of competencies in terms of um, you know commercial outlook and planning and um, being astute about how you kind of recognize you know, revenue from more complex uh, contracts, but also some of these new metrics around about, you know, how efficiently you can grow. Um, these are important things to impress your investors and to presumably improve the chances that you land your next funding because it's not like um, there's no more equity funding out there. The markets are still open. Uh, and like like any downswing, um, you know, there's always a moment when things pull out and things return to, you know, where they were. And it might, it might even be that, that that we're probably there already. Um, but yeah, there's some really important takeaways there for people that uh, are really focused on um, helping to take their business through into the next stage.
1: Yeah, I should say we're very much open for funding. So if you are a, a B2B SaaS uh, CFO that's looking for funding at, and you're in that sort of 2 to 10 million ARR bracket, please uh, knock on our door. Uh, and and more generally, I mean, as I said, we, we invest across lots and lots of different sectors. Um So everything from sort of health tech, to consumer tech, biotech, et cetera. And, and, and Octopus is very, very much open for investment. Um, and we, you know, we are, I, I believe we are that true long-term investor. You know, we are the one that's going to support sport companies time and time again. Um, I think we've got a very good record of doing that. Um, and, you know, our funds are evergreen, so we're in it for the long term. So please, if you are looking to raise funding, um, and do, uh, you know, do, do come and knock on our door and, and, and find us.
0: I think you'll have plenty of people uh, take you up on that offer, Edward. Um, Edward. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Um, it's been really good to talk through this like really important area. Um, it's been super interesting. I've, I've I've learned a lot about metrics. I haven't been in a CFO role myself for over twelve months now, and so <laughs> just a couple of new metrics there that were a uh, very interesting learning from my standpoint as well. Uh, and and particularly a huge thank you because um, I know you've got a flu type thing right now and you're a bit croaky. And um, I super appreciate you still agreeing to. Um, do the podcast recording with me, um, even though you're feeling quite under the weather.
1: Uh it's, it's it's no problem. It's no problem. Thanks for being on. And you know, I think you you what you guys are doing at, at startup CFO is really, really uh, you know, really important. And it's great to be a little bit a part of the ecosystem.
0: Edward, fantastic. It's it's always good to hear um VZ think highly of what we built up at uh you know Startup CFO. Um thanks again, and um um yeah, thank you for being on the podcast.
1: No problem. Thanks, guy.
0: Here at Startup SIFO, we are big fans of the new digital procurement service, Vertice, founded in the UK by serial entrepreneurs and brothers, Eldar and Roy2V. Vertice is a technology company designed to help startups manage their SaaS spend. To find out how to streamline your renewals, get visibility on your tech stack, and most importantly, cut your total SaaS spend by 20 to 30% visit vertice.one or send me a message in our Slack account and I'll be happy to make an introduction. You were listening to CFO Insights brought to you by Startup CFO. If you're a finance professional working in disruptive tech and would like to join our global network, visit our website startupcfo.tech to learn more. This podcast was part of our CFO Insights series of discussions and if you want to learn more about the Startup CFO group, Follow us on LinkedIn to learn more about our community and the upcoming events. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast.